Globechain is the largest and fastest growing ESG reuse marketplace that helps companies become more sustainable, save money, and achieve their ESG and SDG targets. Globechain connects companies from the construction, retail, hospitality, and office sectors with nonprofits, small businesses, and people to redistribute unneeded items, reducing waste from going to landfill. From fixtures and fittings going to thrift stores and being upcycled by fashion students to construction material being reused to help build schools, items are requested super quickly and help generate impact to local communities. So far, Globechain has diverted over 58 million kilograms of items from landfill, and they've helped over 50 million people across the world, saving them 350 million pounds through reuse. Check them out at globechain.com. One of the key tenets of the circular economy is to reuse what you already have. Reusing avoids products from going to landfill while also ensuring that additional resources and materials are not used to unnecessarily create new products. This is what brothers Justin and Ryan Andrews are tapping into with their company Reuse It, which focuses on redistributing used lab equipment from companies that no longer need it to people who can make good use of it. Not only is Reuse It good for the environment, but it's also helpful for innovation because entrepreneurs can start working on their ideas by purchasing high quality, relatively inexpensive equipment. I love seeing sustainable entrepreneurship that's good for both the planet and people. This is an uplifting and energetic episode. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Ryan and Justin, thanks so much for joining me on Sustainability Champions Podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Hi, Daniel. Hey, Daniel, how you doing? Thank you. Appreciate it. And looking forward to talking to you about what we do here. Yeah, well, speaking about what you do here at Reuse It. So uh, the way I like to start these calls is just with a quick, broad overview. Um, and I find the kind of elevator pitch is a easy way to start. So what is the elevator pitch for Reuse It? Go ahead, Ryan. Go first. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Uh, so Reuse It's a surplus asset management company focused on delivering services and technology to handle our global clients' surplus assets. Um, there's a lot of productivity that is lost in the traditional way of handling surplus, and we were able to find that and, and optimize uh, at every level, every pain point that you can find in surplus. We've been working towards uh, developing technology and services to address it. Awesome. And when you say surplus assets, um, what do you mean precisely? Yeah. So these are capital assets that um, we're in the life sciences and biotech industry. So these are capital assets that they use, scientific instruments, manufacturing instruments. And um, the moment they're done using them, it becomes surplus. And right now, a, a lot of organizations don't really have a process designed around what to do at end of life because mm -hmm. they need to go back to doing what they need to do, you know, run their research, run their product, you know, production. And so it becomes an afterthought. And so we, we saw that by, um, by taking a look at these large organizations and, and seeing all the waste streams that were, that were occurring with their end of life instruments. And so we looked to find productivity within that and and find solutions to say look we can handle that for you so you don't have to worry about it we'll 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 pick up the ball and we'll turn it into productivity 
by by way of capital recovery, savings, uh, landfill avoidance, um, and bandwidth reduction. So yeah, basically, a way to look at what reuse it surplus asset management does is is we are the first mile and the last mile. Uh, we have a system that uh, a cloud-based system that enables these really large multinational corporations to pick up a piece of equipment right off the lab, uh, put it into our one of our warehouses onto our online online catalog, and then redeploy it back out to them. So we're going to get that equipment back out, reinstalled, uh, validated, whatever needs to be done, uh, so the equipment can go back into use. So mm -hmm. it's a quick way to pitch it. That's cool. And and so before we use it, I mean, what would happen to all of these? Because this kind of lab equipment, and, and I have practically no background, but I mean, if I've seen an MRI machine before and these things are huge and I understand they're very expensive. Um, so, I mean, if someone, if like a hospital, let's say, and and yeah, feel free to correct me if, if I'm not talking about the right industry, but if a hospital yeah. is done with an MRI machine, I mean, what would normally happen to that? Mm. Well, most of our equipment comes from the life sciences sector, right? So it's more of the research um, okay. and development scientific equipment versus your healthcare equipment. But gotcha. um, I am sure that it's it's in all capital asset industries, they're, they're not really handling their surplus the right way anyways. So I could speak for, for most, uh, you know, end of life assets within, a, within an industry to say that historically what's been happening and, and it's because of what's been available to these providers of equipment, the owners of equipment is they'll wholesale them. Um, they'll, they'll collect all their assets that they're no longer using and they'll put it in a warehouse or a back corner um, of a lab, or they'll even invest in an offsite storage. And they're, they're doing this because they, they know that the equipment has value still. Um, but the problem is, the, the process they're using to actually catalog and, and, and track this, uh, this, these surplus assets uh, doesn't result in, in actual reuse. And so what happens is it ends up going into the storage units or these warehouses or location and it depreciates, um, it gets broken in transit um, or eventually they'll call like a liquidation broker or an auction house and they'll come in and they'll sell these items you know, as is, where is, and it really minimizes the productivity that, that could be found if those assets were managed properly and brought into a, a technology and a and a, a process that would allow the, the life extension of those assets. So where where we really focused on early was was looking at all this surplus and seeing how they were handling it. You know, there was lots of different companies that would handle it. Like I, like I mentioned, when they put it in a warehouse and then it collects dust, um, you know, they didn't retain, you know, the, the right information or like the right accessories. And all of a sudden it turned a $200,000 machine into, you know, scrap. Hmm. And um, so this is kind of the historical approach to, to what these companies do with their surplus, because truth be told, they're not in the, in that market, they they need to go back and do the work that they're supposed to be doing, and that's why this this waste stream we saw is, is such an opportunity for reuse. And every time that a company can reuse a piece of equipment, you're you're saving money, you're saving landfill, um, and then if you sell it onto the secondary markets, you're you know re receiving money back. So there's a lot of a lot of productivity that can be found in just addressing your surplus differently mm -hmm. yeah 
So we we don't um, we don't work directly with hospitals, though. That is going into medical equipment is one of the next avenues that Reuse it wants to go. But uh, currently, yeah, focused on life sciences and pharmaceutical companies. So these are the type of equipment that we're handling is the stuff that's used for drug discovery and produ production of actual um, vaccines or pills and these kind of stuff. So uh, typically you'll see like a research lab where they've already made a proof of concept and we'll be, we'll, they'll be done with the equipment long before it's useful life is over. So we'll go in, remove the, uh, the uh, liquid chromographs, we'll remove the mass spectrometers. And this is equipment that's used to identify precisely what material they're working with. Um, there's all kinds of equipment that's, that's used to prepare samples. So centrifuges and, and homogenizers, these are little desktop pieces that you might've seen like a, a small centrifuge or something that heats and cools stuff. So like your typical lab is full of all these kinds of materials that are used to prepare samples and then process those samples and then analyze those samples. So there might be a detector of some kind, you know, that's determining the moisture, determining the, the makeup and materials that are inside of it. And then moving to some of our pharmaceutical lines, pharmaceutical companies, uh, we're, we're dealing with entire lines that are, that are meant for mass production. So we'll have these, um, this equipment that, that you know, it, it's designed to make millions of vials or millions of tablets. And uh, so we handle kind of both of that type of equipment. Um, that seems to be the space where it's, there's a lot of waste going on just because of the nature of these large companies. They're quick moving, fast moving technology, and they're, they're always doing proof of concept. We don't need it anymore. And, or they're doing a production line, the market changes, and they don't need that anymore. So this equipment's in great shape. It's always well-maintained, makes it really easy to find new life. Yeah. And I, uh, I guess off, off the back of what you just said, Justin, I mean, and, and also, Ryan, in terms of, yeah, if they just take that equipment, just think, not really sure what to do with it, I'm just going to kind of pop it into this uh, into this storage unit here, just because, yeah, where else do we put it? I mean, it sounds like some of this equipment that you're talking about, it's very sensitive, obviously highly specialized equipment, probably in some instances quite fragile. So you can't just like lift it and just sort of chuck it in. You have to be very careful with it uh, or else it does become, like you said, Ryan, just scrap. Uh, and, and, I, and I think that's, it sounds like a key component in this whole thing is ensuring that when it is removed and stored and then eventually taken to its next destination, that it's done in a, in a very careful, thoughtful way so that its, uh, its integrity is preserved. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's important That's... to realize that this equipment is not your typical consumer products. So right. the amount, environmentally speaking, material-wise speaking, it is it is really dense inside. So it's got components with exotic uh, metals and plastics and and uh, pieces that are made from all over the world, maybe assembled in one location. So you've got uh, pumps that are inside there that are from Germany and detectors that are from Taiwan and all this goes together and you add up all of the, the carbon footprint and the amount of work that goes into this type of equipment. And it makes a lot of sense to make it last as long as possible, just because of just because it, this is the production of our society. You know, this mm -hmm. is the cream of the crop, the, the highest technology equipment that, that our society makes, you know, so and, and there's so many companies behind it. There's a lot of value in the equipment initially, and it's still there right after it's over, even though it's constantly changing technologies, you'd actually be pretty surprised to find out that uh, even 20 year old PCR machines are still used in labs. And, and you know, the concept behind uh, DNA uh, prep, you know, is, is fairly the same thing. It's heating and cooling a sample over and over again at a precise time and a precise temperature. 
uh, you know, the technology of that doesn't change drastically. You know, so a lot of this equipment is 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 perfect to be uh, to be really optimized. Yeah, and uh, you know, one of the big value systems that we we bring into our program is transparency, and and that's one thing that's been lacking in this industry for a long time, and unfortunately has resulted in a stigma against used equipment. And uh, we we run into this a lot, and we found that the more transparency that we can bring to light the quality or the condition of, of equipment, the more trust that the end users are going to have to actually reacquire a used piece of equipment. Um, this is something that we aimed early on to, to shift into and, and adopt as a, as a value system because transparency is so important. And that's what got us to build our, our software and technology first is so that we can give our clients access because before, like I mentioned, you had, companies throwing these things into warehouses, or you might have a facility manager managing an Excel sheet, but at best case scenario, it was like an Excel sheet with make and model. You don't really know, you know, okay, what's going on with it? What's missing? What's working What's you know? And so we were really valuable for their, for their sustainability reporting in yeah. the sense that every item that comes through uh, our warehouse, we're taking not only pictures of it, but also the measurements, the width, the length, the height, uh, we're getting the, we're getting the weight, of these items and they were classifying them into certain categories. And then when we return that back to their sustainability, we say, here's your activity here, everything you have in, 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 our, in our program, here's how much you've, you've uh, redeployed back out to your system. Here's how much is sold to the third, mar third party markets. And then we can add up those numbers, get a total amount of volume that didn't go to the landfill or a total amount of carbon equivalents that were reused in the company. So these these numbers, this, the transparency that we provide, the extra detail has become crucial for the for the uh, sustainability department to really bolster uh, the activity that, that, that this program provides. Mm. Yeah, and I, I mean, that's that's the cool thing is, you know, they need to, this ESG side is is so important uh, and, and you're able to do that and simultaneously, it sounds like you're able to uh, not only save, but actually make the company money uh, by making sure that the product is sold at the best price possible um, right. and actually reused. Yeah, that's no what's brainer. great. <laughs> right. So that's what's great. We have the ability to to touch points on in various departments within any organization. Right. So if I go to like a 30,000 foot view and I can I can tell a C-suite executive and say, look, you know, we're going to deliver the sustainability data you need to support some of your ESG goals. And we're also going to do it at a profit. So you're not going to experience any, you know, net costs. You're actually going to experience a net positive ROI mm -hmm. on our whole program. Um, this is done through, yeah, resale of equipment, uh, reuse and redeployment internally, but also bandwidth reduction. So we take a look at our customers and as we get to know them, we learn the waste streams that they're that they're experiencing, and we look for opportunities to reduce it. And if we can reduce it by handling um, a return process, for instance, or a parts harvesting process, and avoid um, shipping things across the world just to pull out a board, uh, which is you know occurring in a lot of places, and a lot of manufa equipment manufacturers are doing that, and their reverse logistics are very expensive, so much to the point that they end up just going straight to scrap mm. and and nothing really ends up being productive out of that. Uh, so we, we took over a lot of these 
um, processes and, and look to optimize them. And so they're not only getting all those savings and all that capital recovery, but they're they're reducing their own bandwidth internally by uh, making reuse it kind of handle all mm -hmm. things surplus. Yeah, that makes sense. Going back to something you said earlier, Justin, about how um, these uh, these this equipment is you know it's using so many different exotic metals and plastics, and there's a lot of things that go into it. Um, in terms of the circular economy, um, there is kind of, I think, two ways to look at the circular economy. There is, first of all, the end of life of a product, um, which is what we're talking about. You know, don't throw it away, find a way to reuse it. But then there is the, um, and that's why you have the name. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, then there's also the uh, the beginning part of a product's life, which is, Exotic metals don't just grow on trees. I mean, you have to mine for them, uh, and that there's there's an environmental cost for that. Then there's the shipping. Then there's the production. There's there are environmental costs to creating a product, and so if you're able to not, if you throw something away, with which is the linear economy, you know, you, you make it, take it, and then discard it. Basically, um, yeah. all of that energy and effort and the environmental cost basically just go straight into the landfill after. The product is done even if it has life beyond but what you're yeah. actually doing by re by allowing and encouraging the reuse of these products is actually um, uh, diminishing the amount of new metals that are required for it's these on, products on exactly yeah so i mean yeah that i think that part of the equation deserves a lot more attention uh it, it's a little bit more difficult to sort of put on a piece of paper it's much easier to visualize you know equipment or a sofa or something in the landfill saying look how sad this is but the other part of it is it's it's extremely sad because there was so much work and time and energy and resources that were put into it as well and by reusing it you're avoiding the waste of all of that yeah, it creates a paradigm shift in the in the kind of the supply chain, wherein the demand decreases for raw materials mm -hmm. uh, simply because we've become more efficient with the materials which we've already extracted. And those those yeah, the 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 the, uh, the exotic metals. It's not just you know finding it; it's processing it. You know, it, the heating and the cooling and the chemicals involved in uh, in really purifying something into into some into another uh, high purity metal. It's it's a labor-intensive, resource-intensive uh, endeavor, so it, it definitely pays to you know maximize that. So we'll even one of the programs that we won from one of our uh, clients, uh, they they are a manufacturer and they create these cartridges, right? These like disposable, not single use, but maybe maybe it does like 500 uses. This cartridge is like a thousand-dollar cartridge. It goes into a certain kind of machine, mm -hmm. and in that cartridge is platinum tips that they these diet these cathodes. And, and so now instead of throwing those things away, there's plastic in them and these little high value metals, we'll actually uh, receive all of these cartridges from all around the world that get sent back to us and that it's part of their service. And then we remove by hand uh, these little platinum pieces. I mean, they're, 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 micros they're practically microscopic, but they're adding up to you know, 40, $50,000 worth of platinum you know, um, in a month worth of these little teeny pieces. It goes back to the company and it helps keeps the program running at the same time. Now, yeah, it's less platinum that the world needs to extract from the ground. It can be reused again, this material.
in, in many ways, you know, and I think the reason why it works so well is because it's simple. You know, it's it's simple and, and because of the simplicity, it's elegant and it works well. Um, and I think that the, the reuse marketplace, just like you were saying, this could be done in, in every single industry. There's no reason why it can't be done. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure it's being thought up and done and, and clearly it's, it's needed. And that's why, you know, you're seeing such success with it because yeah, it, it's just, it makes sense on so many, so many levels. Um, and so what, in terms of kind of, if we, if we start looking forward a little bit, um, you mentioned that you have interest or, you know, potential, um, you're potentially looking at the healthcare sector, but a little bit broader speaking in terms of what you're hoping to see for reuse it, what are some of the future, uh, things that you can share, uh, that you're hoping to accomplish or, or do? Yeah. So education is probably a big portion of our next mission, right? Is, is educating the importance of reuse first, right? Mm -hmm. And then giving, giving these organizations the easy button say, look, you know, you, you can adopt a reuse mentality and you can, and you can see the, we can show you the benefits of doing this with your organization. Um, but it's a, it's a pain point. And, and so establishing, um, you know, an easy button for these organizations to come in and say, look, okay, come take a look what we have, you know, and, and every organization is different. They're handling different types of assets and even different industries have different ways of, of handling things. And, and this is what's unique for us is, is we've been able to customize um, all of our programs. And, you know, we have a lot of different types of, of clients right now who are in different parts of the world and who have different, you know, goals. And, and what we do is we just take a look at their pain points and say, okay, can we find a way to, to increase productivity here. And the more that we do that, the more that that organization shifts their mentality. So um, like I said, one of our first goals here is, is to educate and, and give that easy button uh, for reuse and show people that sustainability can be found uh, and, and had profitably. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Justin probably has something more. Yeah. I mean, going further on the education of what we want to do in the future is, as we, we did uh, publish this first white paper, um, really quantifying uh, at, a, at a low at a, um, individual level, each piece of equipment, what the carbon off offsets are gonna be. Uh, the next couple of papers we wanna show is extrapolating that data and, and showing it on a wider scale. What if this was uh, CSAM in place across, across the world? You know, what could that really translate to? Could we hit these lofty 2030 goals? Uh, some of these businesses that have to hit net zero by 2050, a lot of our clients have these goals, you know, and so what we want to do is, is uh, keep on publishing, you know, um, we have, I think, really valuable data showing that we've done all this at a net profit for our clients. And so I want to go in explaining, uh, you know, the closed loop systems and the financial benefits they can get out of just simply reusing and not even selling necessarily just the cost the cost avoidances mm -hmm. uh, and the procurement departments and everywhere else, supply chain issues. So we, we definitely want to go, like Ryan was saying, uh, into more education, publishing more, more uh, great data um, that because a lot of our, a lot of our clients, I think uh, they, they really require that they need to see that this does work, you know, and that's what we're showing. Um, 
And then as we grow into the future, I think that uh, going into more industries is, is, is critical, but so is getting more franchises. Uh, Reusa currently only has one franchise, well, technically two. Two of them are owned by, well, I own, the, me and Ryan own the one here in, in Netherlands, of course, the United States, but we actually have a, a third franchise in the UK and that's an independently owned operation. Uh, it was great because we needed to serve our existing clients, which are, are worldwide and they have locations in pretty much every country. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they needed to be served in, in the UK. And during Brexit, there was so much uncertainty that we ended up saying, hey, why don't we just outsource what Reusa does uh, to a third party. They can do pickups, they can do storing equipment and the redeploying in that region. We don't have to worry about all this stuff. And so from that birth, this idea, you know, that we could do that all over the world, you know, we mm -hmm. could have use it locations uh, all over. So all we have to do is just identify existing uh, used equipment handlers, you know, and there's lots of them all over the place. They specialize in all kinds of things. We find them, we give them uh, a reuse it franchise. We say, Hey, look, uh, it's going to be really simple. All you have to do is, is use our, our platform, which is already here, of course, and you're going to receive pickup requests. You're going to fulfill those pickup requests and you're going to process equipment and then you're going to send it back out stuff. You, they're used to doing all the time anyway. Um, so we're going to, we're going to uh, expand. I think that way, you know, mm -hmm. the best way is, is just to, is to get more companies, these siloed companies brought into this, into this uh, single network, the single reuse it network. That's what I'm excited about doing. Yeah. I mean, it sounds, it sounds really exciting. I think, you know, the, the education piece is um, really important because otherwise, yeah, if, if you don't understand, if you don't know what the challenges are and what the opportunities are, then you don't know how to act. Uh, but the franchise bit, uh, what sounds really, what, what the reason why that sounds really cool is it, it allows you to scale quickly uh, and easily without needing to set up, you know, and going through the painful process of actually setting up your own processes and, and, you know, spaces. Um, and that way, everything we've been talking about, all the benefits can start so much faster and, um, and companies can begin uh, reusing sooner rather than later. Yeah. We're going to shift more into a platform, right? With exactly, the fulfillment yeah. capabilities that we, we currently do. Um, you know, we, we have multiple user levels coming out and then in the next uh, version of our software and, uh, and yeah, that's going to allow so much more activity um, that will just continue to grow is, is if we can scale in, in that way and and really provide that platform and carry through the value systems that we established over the last eight years of developing this program. Um, I, I think that if you had to do a real long vision site out to what the future holds, um, you'd be looking at uh, the philosophies behind the, the 10 R's of circularity. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with this, where mm -hmm. you kind of have uh, refuse, reduce, redesign, reuse, repair, refurbish, remanufacture, uh, repurpose, and then comes recycling, and then comes recover. And these are all in order of the highest value contrib contribution, you know, in the order of priority that we want to do for the most efficiency. So uh, the first ones being refuse reduce and and redesign that's really the manufacturer's function they can refuse the the purchase of more raw materials by saying hey look do we want to make more of this stuff no yes that's the best way to reduce uh pollution reduce carbon offsets uh reducing you know maybe there's a way to produce less or redesigning maybe there's a way to produce something with less materials and then 
below that comes reuse. So we're at the highest place that we can go to without becoming a manufacturer ourselves. So naturally, the progression in the long term is after you have a sustainable circular economic platform uh, like this, that it may influence uh, manufacturers to redesign how they really build by developing their, their equipment to have a core unit that can easily be changed out. The technology in that core unit might be the, the processors, the detectors, the pieces. And so reuse it goes around and collects the body, the frame, the screens, all the other components that are in there, the pumps and stuff. And then we can get it back to that manufacturer where all they have to do is just swap out a piece mm -hmm. and throw in a new one. And we literally, by creating the network for this reuse and a strong network for the recovery of all this equipment, uh, it, it influences a change in the way that we produce the equipment in the first place. And I would love to see equipment when you purchase it with our little symbol on there that says this, this piece of equipment was designed and already is included in a reuse economy. So when you're done with it, you know, scan this code, push this button, whatever you got to do, and immediately alerts reuse it that, you know, oh, time to pick that thing up, time to recover it, time to get it, you know, and it's already has a plan for its disposition from the day, the day it becomes on the market for the first time. So that, I mean, that's, that's really, I, I don't know if that's going to happen anytime soon, but I think the long term, that's what something like this platform could eventually uh, really influence, you know? Uh, yeah, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. And if you can start menu, um, influencing the manufacturing process, then I think that's really when uh, the game starts to change in a really meaningful way. I mean, what you're doing now is already extremely meaningful. Um, but once you, like you say, you go into those first three um, that, that you mentioned, um, yeah, I mean, that that's when you start. That's that's true circular economic thinking then from a from a design and, and manufacturing point of view. And I think that's really when when, yeah, things start to start to really change uh, and, and hopefully other industries, not just the ones that you're working in, will 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 see it or, you know, it, it's probably like a global paradigm shift that, that'll happen simultaneously. But the industries can inform each other and and grow together. We see it in Europe as opposed to America, right? Mm -hmm. Like it comes to uh, glass bottles, for example. Right. In Europe, you you'll you'll find the water bottles and the and the glass bottles are brought, especially in Germany, brought back to the store, where they're then you know brought back to the manufacturer, they're sanitized and refilled. And so those glass bottles, if you ever seen one, it's thicker, heavier duty, you know, and that glass bottle can be transported and, and taken the beating you know, and not break. Whereas in the glass bottles in the States are made as thin as humanly possible to hold just enough long, you know, last long enough to be drinking one time and then thrown away and recycled, broken, burned, turned back into glass and made into new, new plugs that eventually become uh, bottles again. But that same concept, what stops manufacturers making equipment at a really, really high quality standard is the fact that they know that it might just get used for a short time. The client's always going to be, the buyer's always going to be looking for the next cheapest thing. But if those buyers know that there's value in their equipment after they're done with it, where they can get essentially like almost like a deposit back, you know, mm -hmm. like I use this, here's the piece back, then the manufacturer is going to have no problem investing and in making that equipment heavier duty, meant for more usage, lasting longer. That means that every piece in that thing, the metals down to the plastics are going to get used even longer, you know, so it's, it's like you said, it's a paradigm shift uh, starting at the manufacturer uh, behavior, um, having a network where we know we can recover this equipment 
And then it changes the buyer's behavior. And they go, oh, wow, I can now afford to spend more on this, knowing that when I'm done with this, it doesn't go to the trash. There's going to be an outlet for me to bring this back and get my money back from some of it or upgrade easily or whatever the case might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think some of these shifts have, have occurred in, in certain places like real estate, cars. You know, it's it's a known you know, understanding that you're going to buy a car and it's going to have a value once you're done with it, you know? And so um, I don't know how we see that and, and, and act on that on a regular basis, but we don't do it for every other asset we have and, and we control. And uh, I think, I, I think the shift is going to happen a lot easier once people really start seeing that you can have a sustainability program like this producing benefits on, on all ends of, of, of the current linear economy and do it at a, at a profit and do it at a way that doesn't cost you any money because, you know, sustainability has been around for a while. It's not a new word. And uh, I think a lot of organizations, especially the big ones have kind of treated it like a four letter word in the, in the matter of like, okay, I can only commit to so much sustainable sustainability process, but we can't go all the way because our, you know, our funnels and our and our manufacturing and our sales channels are all optimized for for this. And um, once we can introduce them to a new way of approaching, uh, you know, sustainability through just identifying their surplus and looking for productive productivity at there, mm-hmm. uh, I think it will, I think it will shift quickly, and, and people will start seeing organizations will start seeing that it's possible to be sustainable and and have a business case for it. Absolutely. I think people are already starting to see it. Um, and, you know, I think you're proving it um, single-handedly, at least in in your industry and the people that you're talking to. Uh, it's it's very obvious. And I think that's the beauty of it is that sustainability is financially, because uh, there has to be a business case for it or else there is, it just doesn't work. It becomes more like a donation and a feel-good thing rather than, you know, right. Um, kind of the new business as usual. So, um, yeah, I, I, it, I mean, you sound very optimistic about the whole thing, and I and I agree with you. I think you know there is a lot of opportunity here, and I think there is a lot of, um, I think this, the direction that you're moving in and, and encouraging um, the entire supply chain um, to to go uh, just because of this platform that you've created. It's it's a powerful place to be. And I think, you know, um, I would also be just like you are, but like really excited and, and passionate and, and, you know, thrilled to to see the impact. Uh, and it sounds like in, in many ways, you're really just getting started uh, and you're just starting to see how big and beautiful this thing can really can can get we're asking we're asking the community to help us out and join the reuse it revolution so Mm -hmm. we've made a page we have kind of a hashtag for it but essentially it is uh you know we want to change regulations we want to give large corporations huge tax incentives to start a surplus asset management program you know and we want the the community the public to go out there and demand that and say like let's let's change regulation uh, we're, it's always been a cost, you know, these companies have to, it's sad, but they have to invest so much money to stay sustainable. And we don't want it to be like that anymore. If we just change some, some rules, and I know it does force the companies to be sustainable, but this is a force in the sense where, yeah, you now you have to have a sustainability, a surplus asset management program, but it's going to be profitable for you, you know, so we're not asking them to go, 
you know, uh, spend offsets and, and put 10% of their income or 1% of their income towards sustainable uh, measures. We're not saying that at all, but we definitely need help, you know, influencing uh, legislation that really will benefit the companies even more with tax breaks and say, look, if you're going to use a sustainable asset program, then, then, then you should be able to get a discount or a tax rebate or something like that. And that's what might be beautiful in these carbon offsets. If, if reuse it can become a collection house, mm. collecting all of those carbon offsets and then distributing the, the money from them back to the back to our clients, then that may be another way to keep this thing financially stable because that's how we do it. We have to incentivize them in a way that they see it as a competitive advantage. Right. Business need to see that this is not just some, some meaningless sustainable uh, you know, regulation they have to follow, another cost, another percentage of their income gone, you know, the shareholders, sorry, we got some certain amount of money, can't go back to you because of this. Instead, they have to say, like, we did this because uh, we're doing this because it's saving us money, it's giving us an advantage to get equipment faster, to stay running longer, to make our prices lower, to do all these things. When they see that, then it will grow itself. You know, and and then we should really push through, but we do have to get that initial user revolution started. You know, absolutely, yeah. I I I see. I completely agree, and I see your point. And I think, um, I think that revolution will sort of kick off kick off on its own. It's sort of this momentum that you need to build, and and I mean, hopefully. Uh, in an ideal world, you don't even need legislation for it to happen uh, just because it's going to be such a no brainer. I think the legislation will um, assist for sure. Um, but yeah, it, it seems to me like the the business model that you've come up with and the um, the benefits that, that your clients and on both sides of the marketplace receive make it really obvious um, that it's the right thing and the best thing to do anyway. Um, and, and that's why I personally, I've always thought sustainability has to be a, the business case for sustainability is first and foremost. Um, and we're talking about B2B, but even on a, in a B2C world, you know, it, it's like, if I'm going to use, um, an easy example, if I'm going to use a sustainable straw, like I don't like paper straws, they are really bad. They're, they, the whole process of a paper straw is uncomfortable. Like they fall apart. They, they just don't work well, you know? So for me, that becomes, it's a donation then I'm doing it because I know it's the right thing to do, but not because I think it's the better choice in terms of my user experience. Um, and it, you know, so, but if, if you can come up with a straw that actually works better than the plastic one, and it's a better one, then all of a sudden that's a no brainer because the user experience is better and uh, and by the way it's sustainable uh, and i think that's that's what that's what you're doing with reuse it is you're making a very solid easy to understand business case which by the way is also environmentally friendly yeah yeah exactly it needs, it needs to be that incentive <clears throat> everyone's going to find a loophole there's always going to be yeah. a way around sustainability to make it look like you're being sustainable but then exactly. find a way to actually go around that's always going to be undermined you yeah. know but once we give them a real tool to grow the business, to make them more successful, then they're going to grow it themselves. And we, we see that with our clients, uh, even though, you know, we, we've had like, for example, Thermal Fisher on our, on our client list now for eight years, almost, um, they're still growing our program internally, hmm. you know, and, but, but we don't have to grow it for them. We're not, we're not in there with our business development person necessarily calling every single site and saying, Hey, there's a new division and a new acquisition. Now let's go explain to them the program and how things work. They're internally 
motivated to do it because they're the exactly. ones that are experiencing this return. And so now they have uh, FTEs, full-time people that are that are dedicated to managing this program. You know, and I think that that's the hardest mm -hmm. step for them to get by is to realize that it's worth the investment to 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 make employees within the organization uh, in charge of the surplus asset management program. And a lot of a lot of organizations just aren't willing to take that first step, but because at first it's a little expensive, right? But then eventually, when you start getting that flow of assets coming in, and you build that inventory, and then you start selling that inventory and reusing that inventory, that's when you start to see those returns. And so that might not happen for the first six months or so, you know. But that's that little bit you kind of need to kind of jumpstart a program like this. It's got, it's kind of complex. It's a little hard to explain, but you definitely want some champions. Uh, within the organization who truly understand how it works uh accounting procedures can be uh confusing you know without with, with some items with book value on them and whatnot so there's a lot of a lot of stuff each individual organization is going to have their various challenges regarding like which division is technically owned by a separate shareholder or whatever the case may be so how do we transfer equipment right there because what we do is we cross all the department lines all the division lines and we say look at your organization from an asset level, you know, forget it, forget who owns what, this is, you're all one organization, you know, who cares what department and what cost center and whatnot. So that bypassing all that also changes a lot of the ways that they operate things. But we're talking about assets here. You know, we're talking about physical equipment that can be used by other departments and it's going to be thrown away if we don't do something about it, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, getting that to change. That's why Ryan was mentioning education being such an important factor. Uh, even after our clients, they still need to be educated more, you know, and then um, and then take that uh, commitment level. You know, I would love to see that commitment level uh, that, that Thermo Fisher has. You know, they really are committed to expanding the program throughout all of their locations. And, and we're seeing a lot of progression. You know, it's, it's really great. Yeah. One of the, I'm just going to add to that. One of the great, you know, things about what we're presenting to the world right now is that it's not a concept. Right. We've been we've been beta testing this with one of the largest organizations in the world, you know, regardless of our industry, it's it's still one of the largest companies in the world. And we were fortunate enough to learn all the pain points and experience all the various advantages and, and, and disadvantages of the way they were doing things and, and then finding solutions along the way um, to the point now where we're like, OK, we can go ahead and and copy and paste this this model, this program and bring in more clients. And, and that's where we're we're at today is, is we're not presenting a, a new concept. This is proven. We have data and we have a white paper to prove everything that we've been doing. And now it's just about scale. Can we replicate this at every organization as many times over? Um, and, and I think the more that we continue to do that, the faster this trend uh, will shift and, and we'll start really making an actionable um, approach to sustainability at least in our sector of, of surplus assets hmm. yeah well i think that's a that's a it's a very exciting future that you have um and there's clearly a lot more work to do which is i think an exciting thing because that means that there there's opportunity as we've been talking about so yeah i'm wishing both of you the best of luck thank you so much for your time and for going through the work that you're doing with reuse it i i mean like we've been talking about it, it there's just um the the position that you, I think, based on what you're saying, that you've put yourself in, it's creating so much good on so many levels for so many people, um, and it's it's really exciting to see. And I I hope you know a year from now you've um, your the the reuse it revolution is kicking off in in full 
full high gear and uh, and things are really, really happening and changing. So best of luck. Uh, and yeah, again, thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. appreciate it. Appreciate your time. Globechain is the largest and fastest growing ESG reuse marketplace that helps companies become more sustainable, save money, and achieve their ESG and SDG targets. Globechain connects companies from the construction, retail, hospitality, and office sectors with nonprofits, small businesses, and people to redistribute unneeded items, reducing waste from going to landfill. From fixtures and fittings going to thrift stores and being upcycled by fashion students to construction material being reused to help build schools, items are requested super quickly and help generate impact to local communities. So far, Globechain has diverted over 58 million kilograms of items from landfill, and they've helped over 50 million people across the world, saving them 350 million pounds through reuse. Check them out at globechain.com.